Hello, it's Nathan Radke from the podcast you're listening to. And thank you for that, by the way, listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. We know you're a busy person with only so much time in your day, so the fact that you choose to spend some of it with us is, is very sweet. This episode is an interesting one as we take a trip back to the 18th and 19th centuries to examine the work of Dr. Franz Mesmer. It's a, it's a wild one, and I wanted to say off the top that while this episode isn't gratuitous or graphic, there are some mature and delicate themes that we address. So if you normally sit around the kitchen table with Grandma and the kids to listen to the uncover-up, we recommend maybe skipping this one, or you're going to get some awkward questions. Having said that, let's hit the theme song. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover Up. I am one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and with me, as always, is Professor Nathan Radke. Hey, Nathan. And with me, as you can probably tell from my voice, are millions and millions of coronaviruses. Yeah, so Nathan and I aren't recording together in the bunker today, but we do get to hear a very sultry version of Nathan. Yeah, I sort of hope that my voice sound, uh, sounds like this in the future. This is, this is pretty cool. I like it. I like it a lot. What are we talking about today? This is one of the rare uh, occasions where I didn't have to do any work. I got to show up. And you're going to tell me about some object that might produce orgasms in some people. Yes. Okay. Well, okay. Let's take it back. <laughs> that is the only thing I remember from when you described what you wanted to talk about. There is something to do with orgasms. Or as the French say, le petit mort. Okay. So we have looked at lots of examples of occult claims in the last few months. Uh, occult right. claims, of course, the idea that you can manipulate the physical world through interacting with a kind of undefined spiritual realm or substance. And we said that the occult emerges in, in Europe and America in the 18th and 19th century, in part as a third way of understanding the world, not through conventional doctrinal faith, like conventional religion, and not through scientific rationality, but the sort of third way. Uh, and we have this whole episode on it, and you can check it out. However, as usual, things are rarely so clear-cut. So we, we find a lot of times in which the occult kind of mixes in with either religious doctrine or with uh, science. For example, when we did Rasputin, that was, I thought, an example of how orthodox religious beliefs can kind of go hand-in-hand hand with more occult practices and attitudes. Right. And if you look at the 1930s, Soviet scientists were fascinated by the possibility of ESP and telekinesis. Right both firmly in the realm of the occult. But since the official ideology of the USSR was completely materialist, they had to come up with materialist explanations for the phenomenon because uh, they, they weren't okay. allowed to acknowledge the existence of kind of spiritual realm because of communism. Right. So our story today is one of those occasions when science and the occult mix it up a little bit. In addition, this story that we're talking about gives us an opportunity to take another look at mass panic, uh, the power of suggestion, psychogenic disorders, the placebo effect, sketchy experiments. This story's got it all. All right. And it's also a story that shows us some of the origins of some new age practices like uh, crystals and energy healing, which I feel like in your previous life you would have been into. Oh man, was I ever. 
The, um, I, I would really like to get some of that money back that I spent on all those crystals. Uh, it was a lot of money. This will, I think, go some way of helping you understand why you were purchasing those crystals and, and where that those ideas came from. Because what we're going to be talking about is uh, a doctor named Franz Mesmer. Oh, I've heard of this name. Yeah, well, I mean, he's one of those people who has a thing named after him. Mesmerism. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly common word to say you were mesmerized by something. Yeah. And wasn't he famous for a stare that was particularly gripping? Well, like, I mean, uh, he had a way of looking. Yeah, he, he no? we'll definitely get into that when we start uh, when we start looking at some of the parties he was throwing in, in Paris. All right. So let's set the stage. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries, there's a German physician named Franz Anton Mesmer. And he shows up in Europe in the middle of the Enlightenment. So... Bumper sticker this for us. Like, what's the Enlightenment about? What does it mean to show up in the Enlightenment? So we have a, a kind of a new philosophy slash ideology that goes along with all the social change that uh, we've talked about, you know, a lot of times, scientific revolution and the decline of doctrinal faith. And the Enlightenment is, I mean, there's, it, it shows up in a whole bunch of different social and cultural realms in Europe in the 18, uh, 17, 1800s. It's a, a kind of rationalism in a philosophical sense, in the sense that it's not a like a divine spirituality or a theology based on that. Is that the direction you wanted to go in, Nathan, or did you want to think about it in other realms as well? No, I can I mean, give that... you the Kantian version no, of what nobody, is enlightenment. Nobody wants, quite... nobody wants no, Kant. I, I thought so. Okay. No, that's that's basically the idea, right? It was sort of this <laughs> time when we were we were thinking that we were shedding old superstitions. We yeah. were learning about the world. We were making exactly. the world our own using the scientific practices. So it's like we can yeah. remake this world in our image. We're no longer yeah. operating at the whims of of what happens to us, we're sort of more active participants in what we choose this world to be like. Yeah. So as an Enlightenment thinker, Mesmer has, you know, the sort of typical Enlightenment disdain for superstition and, and ignorance that, that comes from the past, and he has this desire to move forward into a bold new future. And he thought, which is again very common in, in this time period, that the path to the future was through careful observation. I got a quote. The activity of the human mind, together with its ambition for knowledge, which is never satisfied, and seeking to perfect knowledge previously acquired, abandons observation, replacing it by vague and often frivolous speculation. It forms and accumulates systems, which have only the merit of their mysterious abstraction. It departs imperceptibly from truth, to such an extent as to lose sight thereof, setting up ignorance and superstition in its stead. Hmm. Should we put that into, like, English? <laughs> okay, what is the English version of Mesmer's track there? Okay, so what he's saying is that we have the tendency with our human brains, which are impressive, but we have the tendency to abandon careful observation. We get, we get kind of clumsy, we get sloppy, and we replace our careful scientific observation with guesses and wild theories and things like that. And the more we do that, the further we get from truth... And then basically we're replacing truth with superstitious nonsense. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. I think that enterprises such as science or a kind of rational philosophy, these are projects that aren't natural or intuitive to us. They're, they're things that you have to really work on 
professionals in the business can get it wrong a lot of the times. The way you would think about the world in a kind of unobstructed, natural, intuitive way is more of this kind of mythic, superstitious thinking, which shortcuts a lot of the process of trying to get a handle on what truth is. And to get that, you need rules and it's laborious and it's difficult and you got to pay attention, be careful. Yeah. I think that's that's on the whole right. I mean, David Hume, the Scottish philosopher who was much better than Kant, argued that we weren't really even rational thinkers. We were emotional thinkers for the most part. We were led around by our emotions. And if anything, our rationality just sort of tried to justify what our emotions were feeling. Yep. Yeah. What's interesting about this, this quote that I just read from Mesmer, it reminded me of somebody else. It reminded me of another 18th century German. This talk about how we have to abandon superstition and the, the dangers of frivolous speculation, it reminded me of a Bavarian in the 18th century named Adam Weishaupt. Oh, see, again, I thought you were going to say Immanuel Kant. No, okay. I'm never I'm never going to say Immanuel <laughs> Kant. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, we've talked about Weishaupt before because he is the actual founder of the secret organization known as the Illuminati. Yeah. And the Illuminati was an organization dedicated to enlightenment ends. Yeah. And like radical, like radical enlightenment, burning down yeah. everything in the past, burning down government and the family and religion and like yeah. whatever you got, the Illuminati wants to take it down and replace it with this brand new rational system. And you know, yeah. what's interesting is Mesmer would have been in Bavaria at the time of the formation of the Illuminati. Oh, really? Okay. So we don't know, though, if he had any contact with any Illuminati, but I mean, the timeline does match up. It's, it's kind of interesting. But let's get into what he was actually doing. All right. His early work concerned the way that the moon affected the tides. Now, at this point in history, Newton had already described the force of gravity, but nobody had been able to explain the force of gravity. We knew how long it would take an object to fall from a certain height, how fast it would travel, how much force it would transfer when it hit the ground, but we didn't know why it was falling. Like, what was the mechanism that caused gravity? Now, eventually, of course, with Einstein's theory of relativity, we would move to the idea that gravity was caused by a massive object warping space-time around it. And that's a really weird idea. Einstein's relativity, when you learn about it, it sounds so strange and it sounds so bizarre. But it's also an idea that makes specific predictions about what we should see if we test it to see if it's accurate. And that bizarre theory of relativity has been tested repeatedly, and the predictions made by relativity have been borne out. So despite being a bizarre idea, this twisted time space that we live in, it also seems at this point to be an accurate way of describing the universe. So the lesson there is just because an idea is bizarre doesn't mean it isn't also true, which is something that we should bear in mind when we start to get into more of Mesmer's work. Okay. So he, he looks into the influence the moon has over tides, and he comes to the conclusion that the moon and other heavenly bodies probably had an influence over human health and illness. So now what does this start to sound like? This idea that, oh, the heavenly bodies have an effect on human lives. It sounds like astrology. Yeah, exactly. Now... This is a very different system from that. It sounds a lot like he's getting into astrology, but this is a very different system because he isn't arguing that the moon and planets affect your fate, but instead mm -hmm. exerted a physical force on bodies, causing them to be healthy or sick. Like this guy, he really considers himself to be a scientist rather than an occultist. Right. And I think that's a fair point, And we have to make space 
for the fact that science looked different at a time when you didn't know as much. And so you could apply a scientific method to things that later turn out to be not scientific type questions, but you're still doing science when you don't know yet that this is a realm that might not be amenable to science. So exactly. um, Like we don't know until we investigate what is considered, you know, scientifically relevant and what isn't. We don't know until we start looking at stuff. And he doesn't have the benefit of Einstein's work. So he's at a bit of a loss to explain, like, what exactly is the mechanism that allowed something as far away as the moon to exert an influence immediately on things here on Earth? Well, and and when Newton came up with that theory, it was actually considered deeply anti-scientific or unscientific precisely because it was force at a distance. Yeah. And this was exactly what we're trying to get away from. We're trying to get away from all this magic hocus pocus stuff that makes stuff happen over there. No, no, you have to show how is it that things affect other things? What is the mechanism of operation? And since Newton's theory was essentially descriptive, and descriptive of essentially what appears in some way as a rather nebulous magical force, people were not happy with it. But the thing that Newton's theory did do was it was excellent at predicting things. Yes. Like you could use Newton's theory to calculate math all day and you'd be pretty much totally right. Yeah. So it's frustrating because they didn't know why, but they knew what it did. They just didn't know why it did it. So Mesmer, he's trying to figure out, okay, what other models do I have for other examples of action at a distance. And what he comes up with is magnetism. Because, of course, people had been long aware of the existence of magnetic poles between certain metals. Uh, Aristotle talked about it. There's references to uh, magnetism in Indian and Chinese works from almost like 2,000 years ago. In 1600, an English philosopher named Gilbert argued that the reason lodestones pointed north was that the earth itself was somehow magnetic. It's pretty good. Some pretty good thinking. And he was correct. It was kind of like gravity, though, magnetism. In Mesmer's time, people knew that it existed and what it did, but they didn't know why or how it did it. But it does give him like a sort of a model that he can, that he can use to try to figure out what, what he's observing. So he comes up with a hypothesis called animal magnetism. Oh, I've heard this. It was essentially the like a what like sexual attraction. Oh, okay. No, animal magnetism as sexual attraction. It's kind of like your your sexual power that you command. Yes. Now that there is an aspect to that with animal magnetism, but as we'll see, it goes. It, it's a much broader idea it, in that it permeates all things, according to Mesmer. Uh, it's, it's a kind okay. of spiritual fluid that runs through everything, living things uh, and inanimate things. Okay. And his argument is that sometimes that spiritual fluid can get blocked in areas of the body. Mm. When that happens, the result is illness. And therefore, that illness can be cured by removing the blockages of that fluid as it goes through your body. Right. Okay. So in the 1770s, Mesmer is working with an astronomy professor from Vienna who has, I think, the best name we've ever come across, Father Hell. Oh! <laughs> I mean, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> And Hell provides Mesmer with some magnetic rods to use in his experiments. And Mesmer has a patient, a 29-year-old woman named Austerlin, who is having serious health issues, uh, toothache, earache, delirium, rage, vomiting, swooning. And what Mesmer did was he had Austerlin drink iron suspended in a tonic solution, and then he moved the magnetic rods over her body, the idea being that this would then sort of rearrange that animal magnetism and it would clear up the problems that she was having. And Mesmer claims that the treatment was a success. 
Now, when Mesmer told Father Hell about the success, Hell goes to the press and takes credit for it. And the idea of using magnets to cure disease becomes trendy. But the other doctors who used them found that they didn't really have much of an effect on illness. So Mesmer, possibly in order to distance himself from Father Hell and that bad publicity that was starting to circulate about the inefficiency of using magnets, uh, Mesmer claims that it wasn't the magnets at all that had the healing power, but Mesmer's own body, and that the movements of his hands over and around the patient were what was actually causing the healing. Mm. Okay. So when we talk about Mesmerism, it's originally this idea of the manipulation of animal magnetism of a subject through the physical actions and movements of the mesmerizer. Okay. Now, the goal of mesmerism, like how do you know you've, you've succeeded by, of mesmerizing somebody? You would produce in the patient something called, at the time, a paroxysm or a crisis. Okay. Basically, it would be an involuntary response from the person that could include uh, gasping, minor convulsions laughter, tears, like it, you'd, you'd sort of get thrown into these throes where your body would, would have this really strong climactic reaction. Now, I find it somewhat worrying that the sign that your treatment is working is some kind of distress in the patient. I uh, mean, I feel like there'd be a lot of a lot of things that would pass muster with this kind of standard for is the treatment working? I mean, you bash somebody over the head with a stick and you're going to get a kind of a paroxysm. Did paroxysm he call it? or a crisis. Right? A cri you would definitely uh, initiate a crisis. Uh, but this is something that even the very early ancient Greek doctors noticed is that after people had like an epileptic fit, they would often feel better. I, I know this. I've had like mini strokes and things like that. And often afterwards, there is this weird sense of euphoria and well-being once you've survived it. So it's sort of like thinking of the ancient Greeks, sort of like a catharsis. Yeah. I mean, it's, think about how, think about before you throw up, how do you feel? Horrible. How about after you throw up? Better. Yeah. And so it's sort of that kind of, as you say, cathartic thing. The other thing that's going on here is that these paroxysms or crises, as he was describing with the gasping and the convulsions and the and the sort of the emotional response and this this sort of tremendous feeling of built up tension building up to a climax and then releasing. Ah. Ah. Yes. Is this going to stay PG this this podcast? We are because I'm only going to refer to it by the French name. I suspect that what was actually <laughs> happening here was what the French referred to as le petit mort, the little death. Which is an orgasm. Yes, it is. It is an orgasm. Just just to make that clear, because I was not aware that the French called it the little death. Oh, you got to spend more time in France. I, I think I will now. I mean, that's that's really cool. At this point, Mesmer's doing really well. People are really getting into these treatments. Yeah, I mean, if, if, it's, if it's how you're describing it, I can imagine. And not only that, think about what the options were as far as what medicine was like in the late 18th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get you can have an orgasm or you can have leeches. Yeah, or and like or bloodletting. Like it's yeah. Given the two options, you're gonna go for the mesmerism. <laughs> because the bloodletting wouldn't work either, but no. it would be probably harmful for you. So Mesmer becomes quite popular. And around this time, Mesmer is hired on as an analyst and consultant doing an investigation of a famed Austrian exorcist named Johann Josef Gassner. And he was claiming that he could cure illness and sicknesses by casting out demons. Mm -hmm. So okay. this, is, this is fascinating to me because it's like a clash of paradigms. 
Yeah. What is it that's causing illness? On the one hand, you have Gassner saying, well, it's demons. And then you have Mesmer saying, no, it's blockages in animal magnetism. Mm-hmm. The medical authorities had become suspicious of Gassner and his exorcisms, since for one thing, it appeared that incidences of alleged demonic possessions spiked every time he visited an area, <laughs> okay. which, which was raising the question of whether he might actually be causing the possessions rather than curing yeah. them. So yeah, this, this battle between Mesmer and Gassner is fascinating. Now, I had never heard of it before until I was researching it over the last couple months, because each of them represented a paradigm. You had doctrinal faith mixed with the occult in the form of exorcism, or scientific rationalism mixed with the occult in the form of mesmerism. Hmm. But at this time, Gassner's, the, the religious doctrine is kind of on the decline, and Mesmer's is on the rise. Mm-hmm. So Mesmer wins this fight. In front of a university academy in Bavaria, Mesmer performed a kind of secular exorcism using his new method of mesmerism. Okay. So what they did was they took somebody who thought they were possessed, Mesmer came in and did his mesmerism, not an exorcism, and was able to uh, alleviate the symptoms that the person was having. What we have here is a kind of a public uh, experiment. And what's interesting, and this is going to come back later again, Mesmer then argued that it was absurd to think that Gassner was exercising demons from his subjects. Remember, Mesmer is living in a world of science and nature, and this sort of more spiritual aspect he is uninterested in. But Mesmer doesn't think that Gassner is a fraud. He doesn't think he's a charlatan. Instead, Mesmer argues that Gassner was accidentally mesmerizing people. And okay. that rather than being a fake, Gassner was a, a clearly a highly skilled, inadvertent mesmerizer. Hmm. So after this Gassner investigation, Mesmer takes on hmm. a high-profile case, an 18-year-old musician who had been blind since she was three and a half, named Maria Teresa Parody. And... This is something that I noticed. All of his famous cases were young women. So Parody was a favorite of the Habsburg Empress, who was also her patron. And Mesmer sort of has the eyes of Vienna on him at this point. So this is like, the stakes are really high for him to help this this girl's eyesight. And Mesmer does claim success. He says that, yes, I was able to free up the blockages. She can now see perfectly once more. But independent investigators claim that her vision has not returned. Now, Mr. Parody, her father, is furious, and according to Mesmer's writings, Mr. Parody, quote, "...invaded my house, sword in hand, with the intention of entering the room where I was, while my servant was trying to remove him by guarding the door. The madman was at last disarmed, and he left my house breathing imprecations on myself and my household." So I looked that up, because I didn't know what an imprecation was. It means yeah. a, a spoken curse. Ooh. I mean, that's a, that's a heck of a... If, if I was making a film, that's in the film. Yeah. So... Mesmer is basically chased out of Vienna because the experts say that this woman has not regained her vision. People are starting to be suspicious that he is treating all of these young women in his home with these Mm -hmm. methods. And so basically he is, he's run out of town. As he is being run out of town, he claims that Paradis's family is lying about her eyes, that she can see, but that she's pretending to be blind so that she will continue to be funded by the Empress. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he leaves. And he goes to Paris. Mm-hmm. And in Paris, Mesmer finds an upper class of society who are totally willing to listen to him and his claims about animal magnetism. Because at this point, in France in general, and Paris in particular, there is like this thirst for the strange, for the new. There is this fascination with the spirit world, with, with new technologies, with new ideas. And he's so popular in Paris that he starts holding group treatment sessions 
which I will now describe. Okay, okay. so it's theater of the mind time. Mm-hmm. Imagine a bunch of fancy French people, and they're seated around a large metal water tank filled with liquid that had been, quote, magnetized by Mesmer. Because Mesmer argued that you could magnetize anything. You could magnetize a jar, you could magnetize a chair, you could magnetize... You know, it, it'd be like charging them... Well, maybe I should explain at this point. That doesn't mean that the water would attract metal. Like, when we think of magnetize, that's how we think of it. But the water wouldn't attract metal or interfere with compasses. In fact, you could hold a compass up to that magnetized water and it would make no difference. Nothing about Mesmer's magnetism really has anything to do with magnetism as we understand it. When I say that Mesmer has magnetized something or someone, what I mean is that he's claiming to have charged that item or that person by using the animal magnetism that pervades all of existence. I see. Okay. So, so they're charged up with this substance. Mm-hmm. So you've got a tank full of that substance. Poking out of that large water tank would be iron rods, and there would be one rod per patient. Now, each patient would grab hold of their rod with one hand and touch the tip of it to whatever part of their body was causing them trouble. Mm-hmm. So if you had, you know, galloping headaches. consumption, if you had headaches, you'd put it on your head. If you had galloping consumption, you'd put it on your lungs or the outside of your lungs. Sore ankle, put it on your ankle. Mm-hmm. There's a rope that comes out of the tank and it, and it goes sort of loops around all of the patients. And the patients with their free hand are holding hands with the other patients, forming a kind of closed circuit. And as this is going on, Mesmer would be walking around the room, staring deep into each patient's eyes, like uh, making hardcore eye contact. Yeah. Okay. And placing his hands around and on the patient's mostly their lower abdomen and thighs. And occasionally for the female patients, the area Mesmer called the ovaria. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And in the background, the room would be filled with the eerie noise of the glass harmonica. Ah, it has arrived. And so at this moment, I need to do an aside about the glass harmonica because I became obsessed with it during my lockdown. The glass harmonica is a musical instrument that was invented by Benjamin Franklin who's going to show up again in this episode, actually, for an unrelated reason. And um, do you remember that time we were talking about weird German World War II weapons, and I tried to describe that strange helicopter? Yes. Okay, so now I'm going to try and describe the glass harmonica. So, okay, imagine you go into a chicken shawarma restaurant. Okay. Behind the counter, there's a massive skewer standing up, slowly rotating, and, like, covered in chicken. Mm Mm-hmm. I want you to replace the chicken in your imagination with a stack of glass bowls with the skewer running through the bottom of each bowl and each bowl slightly smaller in diameter than the one underneath it. And they're all kind of nestled into each other. I feel like I had a toy for my kids that operated roughly like this. Yeah, that that same sort of idea where you have like a, a stand and then you put things on the stand. Like yeah, and you put the them stand. in the... Exactly, put them in the right order and it kind of forms this pyramidal... Shape. Yeah, exactly. Small being on. Precisely like that. So now imagine you took that upright skewer covered in bowls and you placed it on its side. Okay. And then you hooked the skewer up to a foot pedal so that you could spin the skewer like a rotisserie, okay. which would also spin the bowls. Okay. Then you wet your hands and you place your wet fingers on the rims of the spinning bowls to cause a vibration in the glass, which then creates sound that sounds uh. like this.
wow, that's beautiful and very ethereal. It is extremely ethereal. So the larger the bowl, the deeper the sound, and each bowl is specifically sized so that it, it produces a note on the scale. So you could play chords. If you played like the, the A bowl and the C bowl, then you would get part of an A minor. Okay. So it, it's this weird sound. It becomes very popular in the late 18th century. Like Mozart composed music to be played with the glass harmonica. Really? Yeah, no, it was a big deal. However... Also in the 18th century, there was something of a panic in Vienna over whether the music created by the glass harmonica was also dangerous. Uh-huh. There was some discussion about whether the sounds emitted might cause dizziness, hallucinations, madness, maybe even worse, maybe death. In 1799, the Austrian doctor uh, Anthony Willich, Willich? How do you spell it? W-I-L-L-I-C-H. It could go either way. Probably Willich. Willich. Anthony Village said that with the, a V at the front. Oh yeah, for sure, not Willich. Anthony Village said there that you the, go. just again, just be angry. <laughs> said that the instrument caused quote a great degree of nervous weakness. In 1808, a famous glass harmonicist named oh here we go. So Marianne, last name, write this down. I'm going to need your help here. K I R C H G E S S N E R. Kirchgesner. Ah, okay. So, in 1808, a famous glass harmonicist named Marianne Kirchgesner died at the age of 39, and some blamed her instrument for her death, although as far as I can tell, she died of fever and lung inflammation caused by the fact that she was living in the 19th century. <laughs> was that a diagnosis you could get in the 19th century? It's like, yeah. you were alive. You're alive in the, in the 19th, 19th century, century, and that will kill you. Therefore, you're sick. Yeah, therefore, yes. <laughs> you have terrible lung conditions. It's fascinating to me that this is something that we've seen before. Like, what is this an example of? People get all worked up and say that, oh, there's this thing, it's a threat, we have to, we have to do something about it. Like, what is this an example of? A moral panic. No? Yeah, exactly. Uh, what are some of the other great moral panics that we've come across in the last little while? Well, we've talked about a bunch of them. We've talked about, to some extent, the satanic panic. We talked about the mods and rockers panic of the 60s, which was the sort of test case that got the whole thing going. We have touched on, although haven't given an episode to the witch scare, the Salem witch trials, and then the sort of witch scares that preceded and followed that. There was the Seattle windshield epidemic. We're yeah. going to do an episode on heavy metal. Oh, yeah. And, and sure. that was a huge one. And so that that's what was fascinating to me that when I was a kid in the 1980s, there was this moral panic about heavy metal music and the yep. terrible influence that heavy metal music had on the youth. And That's in right. like the late 18th century, early 19th century, <laughs> instead was, of heavy metal the, music. It was the glass harmonica. It was the glass harmonica. Well, one of the theorists who, he's a contemporary person, uh, Peter Sandman, who's come up before in, in our previous podcasts, he talks about some of the things that can elicit a moral panic. Uh, he talks about how new the object or phenomena is. And basically, if it's new and unfamiliar, there is a much higher degree that you're going to get a moral panic out of it than if it's dangerous but familiar. Now, if you uh, think okay. about, for example, like car driving, car driving is, if you look at the numbers, incredibly dangerous. It's like pandemic level danger. Yeah, it's probably um, the most dangerous thing we do on a daily basis. By far. And it's really shocking. Like the numbers, when you look at them, are, are absolutely incredible. In terms of 
things that could kill you that aren't old age or, you know, some kind of genetic disease, car, car driving or other people car driving is right up there. But it's not, it, because it's so familiar to us, it's not the kind of thing that even though it actually is very dangerous, it's not the kind of thing that makes us afraid or upset. Now, something that is much less dangerous, but completely new, like heavy metal, you know, could, because of its novelty, it's not going to kill you, but because of its novelty seems so threatening in part because of its newness. And so I can see how there's an element of that also in this glass harmonica. It's like, well, we don't know this thing. And um, I mean, and the sound is so eerie and so right, strange. Okay. And so uh, I think you're totally right. And that's why now, because of social media, we live in an age of constant novelty. And so I think we're living in kind of an age of constant moral panics. I mean, think about the Tide Pod scare, the planking yeah. scare. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. There'll be something that somebody puts a video on, and then the next yeah. thing you know, it's on the news. Watch out for this. Your kids are yeah. going to choke to death on Tide Pods while they're planking, yeah. listening to glass uh, harmonica music. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thought about doing the entire episode on the glass harmonica, decided to just do that little aside. So let's go back oh, okay. to the party. Okay. So we got a room full of fancy French people sitting around a uh, giant water tank, touching iron rods to their body parts while Mesmer makes intense eye contact and places his hands on their lower, uh, lower abdomen. And in the background, glass harmonica music. And apparently it was quite the scene. People, it sounds like it. I mean, people would fall into a trance at first. First they get tranced out. Then they'd be thrown into crises. And they would fall over and they would gasp and they'd let out little screams. They convulsed. They'd have fits of laughter and crying. And hundreds of people were flocking to his clinics to be treated in the late 1770s. He even set up a clinic for the poor as well mm -hmm. uh, so that they could be treated, but so that the rich Parisians wouldn't have to have crises with them. Right, right. <laughs> and it got popular enough that they started to kind of irritate the medical community. Now, Mesmer had teamed up with a physician to the French royal family named Charles Deslon, who also, in my research, I think may have, may have also been associated with Weishaupt's Illuminati, hmm. but I'm not okay. sure. So, the king of, of France, Louis XVI, assembles a commission of scientists to look into the claims made by Mesmer and the other Mesmerists. And this commission included Benjamin Franklin, uh, inventor of the glass harmonica, American ambassador and scientist, a uh, famous chemist, Antoine Lavoisier, the okay. astronomer and politician, Jean-Sylvain Bailly, and a Dr. Joseph Ignace Guillotine. Oh, yeah. And the he answer to your not... question is, yes, that guillotine. Except he didn't actually invent it. No, but it was his, I mean, that's okay. So now we have to have an aside <laughs> on guillotine. So Dr. Guillotine was a fascinating character. He was anti-death penalty. Yeah. He didn't invent the guillotine. He did propose a decapitation device. Yeah, to, he, to he, make it more humane. And yeah. then somebody else built it. Somebody else and built then, it. And then isn't it some irony, though, that the guy who opposes the death penalty has the one of the most famous death machines named after him? Yeah. Well, I mean, his idea was, okay, if we have to kill people, we shouldn't kill people. But if we have to, this would be humane. And also, it, there'd be less like thrashing around. It would be less of a spectacle. And so... Right. I don't know what this says about the Parisians at the time. He thought that if it was less of a spectacle, if it was less gory, fewer people would go to watch. Right, right. The past yeah. is weird. Yeah. Think about when in history this is happening and where it's happening. We're talking mm. about France in like the late 18th century. Mm -hmm. Like this is the eve of the French Revolution. Yep. And this is what 
the, the royal family is seen to a lot of use. Yeah, the, the guillotine is going to get a ton of use. In fact, the guillotine is going to cut the head off of famous chemist Antoine Lavoisier and astronomer and politician Jean Sauvel Bailly. Wow. Okay. It's not going to cut off the head of Dr. Guillotine. Right. Okay. Uh, there was a Dr. Guillotine who was guillotined, but it was a different Dr. Guillotine. Ah, okay. I don't know what the chances of that were, but there you have it. So that, that to me, in a way, is also fascinating, that on the eve of the French Revolution, this is what the upper class was kind of interested in. Yeah. yeah they were having sure. these ridiculous parties and listening to Glass Harmonica. And meanwhile, there was like revolution right there. It would have been in the air at that point. Oh, yeah. Because, of course, King Louis XVI also was going to have his head cut off. And it was, as I recall, it took a bunch of chops. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. A great big neck. Right, okay. And by then, the guillotine blade was, was not that was sharp. pretty dull. Yeah, they were, they were using it a lot. But that's still a few years off. At this point, the royal family is still in charge, and they've, they've got this commission looking into Mesmer's practices. Now, Benjamin Franklin is the person who's the most associated with this commission, but he wasn't actually that involved with it. He was a pretty old man at the time and not in very good health. The commission didn't actually examine the work of Mesmer, but of his colleague, Charles Deslan, who was using Mesmer's techniques. And this report is fascinating, and it's also considered an early example of scientific reasoning and testing. Because there was some suspicion amongst the scientists that the very real effects, the le petit mort, les petits morts, generated by the, these parties wasn't due to animal magnetism, but perhaps by the power of the imagination by the psychological impact of the environment in the social situation. This is something we've talked about constantly. We are social beings and ideas and feelings are contagious. So here's some of the methods they used, and I think you'll find them uh, pretty fascinating. They blindfolded a subject who believed in mesmerism, and she was told that she was being given a glass of magnetized water, but it was just an ordinary glass of water. After she drank it, what do you think happened to her? Uh, she had a paroxysm. Yes, exactly. She was flopping around. She was manifesting all the symptoms of being mesmerized. In order to calm her down, they gave her a glass of what they said was normal water, but this glass of water actually had been magnetized by Deslau. Okay, so the, so the first glass had not been. Yep, and it made and, her freak out. And she freaks out. And then the second glass had been, and it has the opposite reaction of what it's supposed to have. Exactly. She thinks that the second glass, which is magnetized, is not magnetized. And upon drinking this magnetized water, she calms down and ceases to be mesmerized. So the defining factor as to whether she had a response from the water had nothing to do with whether it had actually been magnetized and everything to do with whether she thought it had been magnetized. Okay. That's a pretty good experiment. Yeah, I mean, if they do it at least another thousand times with also ones where they tell people it's been magnetized and it has been magnetized, and then they tell people it has been magnetized. It has a, you do all the controls. And also, you, ideally, you would want the experimenters to not know if the water had been magnetized. Exactly, yes, yes. Until yes, after the experiment point. was over. Exactly. But for the 18th century, this is pretty good, I think. <laughs> no, it's true. It's, it's, it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's just applying some rules to because this is when you were talking about mesmer i'm like okay look can we measure it you mm -hmm. know like animal magnetism can you can you is there a measuring rod of some sort like a, an animal magnetism thermometer that you can stick into various objects to see how much animal magnetism it has yeah. you know, you'd want this kind of you want to have measurements and so here's a group that is actually trying to do that yeah 
In another experiment, a mesmerist was hidden behind a screen, performing the elaborate hand gestures that were thought to cause mesmerism in an unknowing subject. So they brought in a subject who believes in mesmerism. They sit her down. They just have a, a little chat with her. And as that chat is going on, this mesmerist is like frantically trying to mesmerize her from behind a screen. Okay. And the subject had no response to the mesmerizing. Didn't even realize she was a target of a mesmerist. When the magnetizer stepped out from behind the screen and performed the same actions, the subject collapses into a crisis. I see. Again, defining factor in the crisis was whether the subject expected to have a crisis and nothing to do with any actual independent influence of the mesmerist. So they did a bunch of more experiments, all basically in the same vein, but they did do quite a few. And the commission comes to the conclusion that the entire phenomenon was brought about by the power of imagination. Or how would we describe that now? The placebo effect. Yeah, exactly. In fact, this is considered one of the first placebo trials in, in Western history. Okay. The patients weren't faking their responses to the mesmerism. The responses were genuine. But the cause was their own psychology rather than the mesmerist manipulation of animal magnetism. I'm sort of, as you're talking, also thinking about... This, is, this accounts for, to some extent, my skepticism around hypnotism, mm-hmm. where I just am not convinced that it's an actual phenomenon, in large part because, you know, it's always subjects expect a certain, they expect a certain response within themselves. And I don't know if you can generate that without their awareness and sort of participation in it. Right. Well, I mean, we'll come back to that as well, because that's sort of where this is going. This is going towards hypnotism. I see. And the commission also found the whole thing kind of disturbingly, alarmingly immoral. Because the mesmerists are men and most of the patients were women. They thought, I think there's something else going on here. So here's here's something that that the commission said. Speaking of what they called the crisis and what I'm calling le petit mort. When this kind of crisis is approaching, the countenance becomes gradually inflamed the eye brightens, and this is the sign of natural desire, which then may be wholly unperceived by the woman who experiences it, but it cannot escape the observant eye of the physician. So what they're arguing is that weak-minded women might become too addicted to the intense sensations of Le Petit Mort and not realize it until it was too late that they had had their morals corrupted. Okay. One of the things I was asking myself while you were talking about Mesmer and his parties is, or actually even before when he's treating essentially young women ex- or from your ne- account, exclusively young women. Almost completely. Home. Okay. It, so I, I asked myself, are we dealing with a sexual predator? Like, are we dealing with somebody who in the guise of performing a medical treatment is essentially feeling up women? Like, is that what he's doing? Now, a danger then, if this is in fact what's happening, a danger is in whitewashing it or excusing Mm -hmm. it or something, right? Which I obviously don't want to do. I know you don't want to either. Of course not. But that second moment also emerges uh, for me as a question. If in a highly repressive society, you know, somebody (laughs) is going to get you off, maybe that's fun too, you know? Like, I want to allow for those two moments to be part of this. Uh, and maybe even mixed up in in specific instances. I don't know. Like, I'm not there, so I don't know what's really going on. But it does make me a little suspicious. This is, this is where I landed on that question, that very important question. 
I am uncomfortable with the examples of him treating like very, very young women in his home. It's not that we can be sure that something sketchy was up, but it's more like this situation made it far too easy for something sketchy to potentially be up. Now, I think it gets even more complicated than that because I think Mesmer was not a fraud. I think he thought this was working. Right, okay. I think okay. he believed in it, if you see what I mean. Like, I don't think he was a scammer. I think he was a believer. I think he was a convert to his own idea. Although if, I mean, okay, it does make it more complicated because I can also see how if if what he is doing is feeling women up, you know, quote, to, to quote unquote treat them, that this might might be easy to trick yourself into thinking you're doing a world of good. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, at the same time, I said I was uncomfortable with the examples of the very young women being treated in his house. However, what was happening with the women in Paris at the giant parties, like that, that clearly is people going and joining of their own free will and their own agency. Yeah. So I'm, I'm much less uncomfortable with those. Those seem much sillier and less disturbing. Yeah, it's, it's, this is getting weirder and weirder. It, yeah, I mean, it does seem it does seem like there is a sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge here where, you know, adults are having some fun under the guise of doing something else. You're, you're not allowed to sort of, you know, enjoy public fornication unless wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's mm -hmm. part of this kind of medical treatment, treatment, in which case it's totally fine to have, quote, unquote, paroxysms or what is it? Les petits morts. Yeah, well, what's the, what's, yeah, uh, a, to have a crisis, crisis. Mm -hmm. to have a crisis, nah, that's okay. Yeah, it's very difficult <laughs> for us to look back from the future and to try to figure out what were the power relationships of these situations. Yeah, 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 exactly. So after this very public declaiming of his work by this royal commission, Mesmer leaves Paris in 1784, which you have to say is probably for the best, knowing what we know from our position in the future. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he gets out just in the nick of time. Yeah, that's, again, and I keep, I keep stressing this, I couldn't help but just be consumed with this idea that all of this is happening right before the French Revolution. Yeah. It, it, it just adds this really weird spin on it. And so many of the people involved are going to be killed. Yeah, yeah. So he ends up in Vienna again, whereupon he's arrested briefly and imprisoned for a couple months under suspicion of being a revolutionary, because, of course, that was when... All Europe was sort of worried that everywhere was going to have a French Revolution. And then eventually, after traveling around Europe for a few more years, he ends his days in Germany, not far from where he grew up. Interesting side note, I don't know what to do with this. He apparently spent every day with a magnetized canary who would wake him up each morning by sitting on his head and singing and would then follow him to the kitchen table where it would put sugar into his tea for him. Cute. Yeah, I don't know. It's quite to... adorable. Super adorable. He never gave up on mesmerism or animal magnetism, and he continued to offer training in the techniques. And this is where I'll leave it with Mesmer. Towards the end of his life, he was asked by one of his disciples why Mesmer insisted that bathing in river water was healthier than well water. And Mesmer replied, Dear doctor, the reason why all water exposed to the rays of the sun is superior to all other water is because it is magnetized. Since 20 years ago, I magnetized the sun! <laughs> okay. So at that point, you've gone like full-blown bananas. Yep. Like at like when you when your belief system is confronted, you can have 
a, a few different responses. One, you can abandon your belief system, have a different kind of crisis. The other, I suppose, is you double down. And it seems like he doubled down hard and oh, yeah. magnetized the sun. For the good of all of humanity, yeah, surely. That's a, right? Yeah, thanks, Mesmer. <laughs> so that's basically the end of Mesmer, but not the end of Mesmerism. No. But for one thing, even if he had been wrong about the, me the, the mechanisms behind what he thought was animal magnetism, it, it can't be denied that his methods did bring about some pretty weird reactions in people. And so uh, in the following decades, people like Abbe Faria, a French monk, or James Abraid, a Scottish surgeon, took Mesmer's procedures and techniques and discarded with the animal magnetism aspect. And instead, they looked at the phenomenon of mesmerism from a psychological perspective and became mm. pioneers in the field of clinical hypnosis. Okay. And this is what's fascinating to me, although everything's fascinating to me right now because I'm locked down in the bunker. But I found this, like, maybe, we'll see. I'll ask you, you're on the outside still. You're still out in the world. So see if you find this fascinating. All right. What Mesmer had said about the exorcist Gossner is sort of what the proto-psychologists were saying about Mesmer. Mesmer had said that Gossner wasn't exercising demons, but unknowingly manipulating animal magnetism. And these proto-psychologists were saying that Mesmer wasn't really manipulating animal magnetism, but unknowingly hypnotizing his patients. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. that as interesting as I think it is? Well, no, I, I do think it is interesting in, in, in tracing the evolution of ideas uh, historically and how people are trying to make sense of phenomenon, maybe without enough data to really make the, pick, the true picture emerge. Or without the available uh, tools to be able to measure things properly. Exactly. And I, I you know, again, like I, I am sympathetic to to these researchers trying to get a handle on what, what is going on. And Mesmer does seem like a more materialist and therefore more scientific person than Gosner, was it? Yep, Gosner was the exorcist. And, exactly. And then these hypnotists are like, you know, I mean, psychology is also just at its infancy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have... Uh, Sigmund Freud in the early 20th century, Carl Jung, and their theories are to a large extent today seen as um, not plausible accounts of human psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly there is much more that has been added in terms of, you know, like how the actual brain works. Yeah, a lot of biology. How, yeah, and how Biochemistry. Thoughts, exactly, which was just really beyond what, you know, the early psychologists had to work with. Yet, I, I, I do come back, and I know this wasn't actually where you started from because you just asked me if I thought it was cool. I do think it's cool, but it makes me yet more suspicious of hypnotism than right, I even because, was. Right, because then the question becomes, is that, so now we're at the stage where it's like, oh no, it isn't animal magnetism, it's hypnosis. And are we going to have right. some other new school come along and say, no, it's not hypnosis, it's this. Well, okay, this is what I'm going to say to you because I know... This is one of your fights. Let's do right. an entire episode on hypnosis. Okay. In fact, let's one of us get hypnotized. Oh man, have I tried. I have tried and tried and tried. I, it, it is, uh, maybe that is part of my own resistance to it is that back in my previous life or lives, I really wanted to be hypnotized. It seemed like a shortcut to solving a whole bunch of problems. You know, well, you could go through all the trouble of quitting smoking and or, you know, feeling, or you just go lie down. Somebody, you know, puts you to sleep. You wake up, you're cured. Boom, done. But you think you're you know? a chicken. 
you know, I mean, honestly, if you've been a smoker and tried to get off it, maybe pretending to be a chicken for a while is, is hey, whatever it takes. Exactly. I worry that we will have to, in order for even to have a hope of this working, is that we have to go to one of these people who does um, shows. Oh, no. Because that's when you really get hypnotized is when 100 people are expecting you to do the outrageous thing that that person just said you're supposed to do. And that's because that's what I think is essentially going on. It's just that you're like, well, okay, I'll just go along with this because it would be too awkward now to admit to the audience that I'm just faking it. So we have Gossner saying, ooh, it's demons, and Mesmer saying, demons, that's nonsense. It's actually animal magnetism. The proto-psychologist saying, animal magnetism, that's nonsense. It's psychology. And now we have Dr. Lee Kunla saying, like, hypnosis, that's ridiculous. It's social pressure. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens when we do that whole episode on it. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. However, it wasn't just the proto-psychologist who grabbed up mesmerism. Uh, mesmerism found a new audience and took it in directions that Mesmer probably wouldn't have approved of. He had taken great pains to describe the phenomenon as a natural and scientific one, but after the scientific community drops Mesmerism, the growing occult community picks up that ball and runs with it. Okay. Like, as, we, as we've talked about before, 19th century, spiritualism was in vogue across Europe and America, and Mesmerism provided a method and some practices to allow spiritualists to move between the earthly plane and the spiritual ones. Many spiritualist practices included the medium being placed into a mesmerized trance first, so that they could then commune with the spirit world through table tapping, or automatic writing, or speaking in tongues. And many claims were made about supernatural abilities and knowledge that mesmerized subjects possessed. Unnatural physical strength, or facilities with languages that the medium was unfamiliar with in a non-mesmerized state. And there were people, spiritualists, who were arguing, ah, spiritualism is simply an extension of mesmerism. In the first stage, the mesmerizer takes control of the subject's limbs and can get them to move on command. The second stage, the body and mind of the subject are under the control of the mesmerizer. Not only is the body responding to suggestions, but the conscious mind is put into a state of sleep. In the third stage, the mesmerized subject is put into a trance state in which they are granted knowledge, received knowledge, about the present that they wouldn't normally know. Mm. Stage four, the mesmerized subject is granted knowledge into the past that they couldn't possibly know. Mm. Stage five, the mesmerized subject is able to see and hear the forms of the spirits of the dead. Stage six, the mesmerized subject is given new information from the spirits of the dead. And finally, the ultimate stage, stage seven, the dead spirits are able to manipulate objects in the physical world. Mm. So 19th century spiritualists like Alan Putnam uh, made the claim that you could see evidence for these powers by looking into the stories of holy books of the world's religions or more recent history like the Salem Witch Trials, which Putnam argued had nothing to do with witchcraft, but was instead an example of like almost a kind of involuntary spiritualism. Okay. That's, I think, another fascinating thing is that this so-called science starts from a place of Mesmer saying, we have to cast out superstition. We have to cast out ridiculous speculation. And what his life's work ends up with is firmly in the world of speculation. Huh. So what do we get from all of this? I would argue that the, the story of Franz Mesmer gives us insight into the relationship between theory and observation. Like we said lots of times before, what you see depends to a great degree on what you think you are seeing. In the same phenomenon, an exorcist sees demonic possession, a mesmerist sees the effects of animal magnetism, a psychologist sees a hypnotized subject. And 
this is something that you mentioned earlier, we should never be totally confident in the paradigm we're using since it's always possible a new theory comes along that explains our observations better and holds up more strongly under experimentation. And we might have to undergo a paradigm shift. And the other thing that you said, which I thought was uh, insightful, is that it's like ideas are organisms. They sort of have their own genealogies. Hmm. And you can look at some of today's new age beliefs in crystals or energy healing or government programs like MKUltra or Stargate and you can see how they have mesmerism as part of their family trees. Hmm. So then the question is, where do we go from here? And it sounds like the answer is, we try to get ourselves hypnotized. <laughs> okay, I'll try again. Do we try and hypnotize each other? That could get weird. At, at that point, we clearly have been spending too much time together. <laughs> I'll come over to the bunker. We'll try to hypnotize each other. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. 